you know, we have 11 aircraft carriers, but they are largely irrelevant to the fight that we're looking at in the Pacific right now. And we have to find a way of making them relevant again, or they will be cut. From the Defense and Aerospace Report, this is the Air Power Podcast, sponsored by GE Aerospace. I'm JJ Gertler. And I'm Vago Maradian. This week, what the future of naval aviation looks like. We'll cover that with retired United States Navy captain and noted naval thinker, Dr. Jerry Hendricks. And we'll take a look at this week's headlines in air power. And it's all made possible by GE Aerospace. Maintaining U.S. air superiority means 30% more range, 20% greater acceleration, and twice the cooling for the F-35. The GE Aerospace XA100 engine is tested and ready to deliver these strategic capabilities. Learn more at geaerospace.com slash XA100. And Bell sponsors our daily podcast, Leonardo DRS and HII sponsor our global coverage. Fortress Information Security sponsors our weekly cyber report. General Atomics Aeronautical Systems sponsors our strategy coverage. And Ultra Intelligence and Communications sponsors our command and control coverage. JJ, what's in the news of the week on All Wings Considered? Well, Vago, some of the wings rotate, and Boeing won a $1.9 billion deal for 184 Apache helicopters. 115 of those are remanufactured, the rest new production. Those are going to the U.S. Army, Australia, and Egypt. Very good news for the folks in Mesa, Arizona, of course. And it adds a data point to the theory that you were discussing on Sunday's business report with Richard Abalafia and Ron Epstein in particular about how Boeing is suddenly winning a lot of contracts. The E-7, the F-15EX fleet is expanding. 75 more KC-46s, replacement for the E-4B. It all looks, in a way, like somebody might be trying to support Boeing during difficult times. I'm no conspiracy theorist, of course. North Macedonia has confirmed it will send its Soviet-era combat aircraft to Ukraine, as Poland and Slovakia are already doing. Those other countries are sending fighters. North Macedonia is sending its entire fleet, that's four, of Sukhoi-25 Frogfoot ground attack aircraft. So all the people who think that we should send A-10s to Ukraine, well, for the moment, we're sending knockoffs of the Northrop A-9 that lost the contract. That's the best they can do for now. The United States Marine Corps' unfunded priorities list is out, and it includes two KC-130Js beyond the two already projected in the FY24 budget. We talked some about that production line last week and how it looks like it's finally ending. The Marines are trying to extend it just a little bit. The other services haven't turned in their homework yet. JJ, uh, uh, I don't regard you as a, a tinfoil hat person, by the way. Nice A9 uh, <laughs> ad there on North America. And there are people right now who are opening up uh, Wikipedia to find out like what on earth you're, you're talking about. But it's it's spot on. Back to the tinfoil hat uh, stuff, right? I mean, you know, we're, we're just looking at this as data points, right? I mean, in many of these cases, we knew the E7 uh, was the direction uh, the Air Force was going to go uh, toward uh, for some time. We knew the E-4B was likely going to be replaced by uh, the only company in the United States that makes large passenger aircraft that can be modified for military missions, obviously a business that uh, Boeing's been in for a very long period of time. Uh, and you can even look at the KC-46 and say, look, it was more likely than not that once the United States Air Force starts buying KC-46s, it would continue buying KC-46s until it looked to an even larger future capacity uh, downstream to replace uh, you know, the, the KC-10, which is sort of the heavyweight tanker. 
from your standpoint, is this looking like, you know, serendipity and a normal course, or is this looking like uh, a little bit of a rescue package, trying to give a little bit of a boost uh, to Boeing? And, you know, but, but then again, the ball is in the company's court about whether or not it can remain competitive over the long term, uh, say in combat aircraft and, and elsewhere. Although, you know, the, the F-15EX is a pretty good way to keep your, keep your hand in the combat aviation business as well. Well, in some ways, it's a challenge to Boeing because some of the issues that the company has been struggling with are execution of programs, not necessarily winning them, but they're being given an opportunity to execute on a large number of new programs or extended programs in this case. No, I tend more toward the Pollyannish, uh, the idea that, yes, this happens to be a serendipity. We knew that these aircraft were going to be replaced. The fact that the same company is replacing all of them is interesting, but not that surprising. But analysts can look at an array of data points and connect them with a different set of lines. You get uh, a I, different curve in the end. Indeed, and, and I should point out, right, in each of these cases, Boeing is replacing a Boeing airplane, right? The E-7 is replacing an E-3. The KC-46 is replacing a KC-135. Uh, the E-4B would get replaced with something similar <laughs> and also made by Boeing. Uh, at the end of the day, and I would even say, right, the uh, you know the F-15 uh, that's coming in in service, but is replacing F-15s, uh, right? Whether in the in the strike or error mission, so it's Boeing for Boeing replacements. And on top of that, the potential competitors in most of these are few to none, so it's not that big a surprise. Let me take you to one thing, which uh, we've have gotten some feedback on our uh, budget coverage and uh, your suggestion that this is a strong uh, aviation budget. There are folks who look at this and say, okay, well, yes, they are buying, for example, F-35s. Uh, this comes from dear friends or listeners of the program, but we're still not buying F-35 in the volume and numbers uh, that we should be buying it in. What's uh, you know your asterisk or addendum on this? that actually we could have dramatically accelerated the purchase of all of these aircraft, uh, as opposed to doing a little bit of a half measure and still not buying uh, the 35 at the rates that we should be buying it at. Well, where you wind up depends on where you started. And if this were three years ago and we were still anticipating 48 F-35s per year going up to a rate somewhere in the 60s to 70s per year, uh, for at least for the Air Force, perfectly understandable. But when last year's budget, for example, projected that they would buy 29 F-35As for the Air Force this year, uh, you're starting from an entirely different baseline. And yes, can the factory build more? Yes. Can it be cost effective to do so? Yes. But we're fortunate, considering the difference between 29 and 48, to be where we are. There could be acceleration in the future. It just depends what else the Air Force is willing to give up. And before we hear from Dr. Hendricks, a reminder, don't miss our other weekly podcasts. Cavus Ships, hosted by Chris Cavus and Chris Cervello, and sponsored by HII and GE Marine, a GE aerospace company, who clear the fog on naval and maritime matters. The Downlink with Laura Winter, who takes a thoughtful look at all things space. And our Cyber Report, sponsored by Fortress Information Security and hosted by the editor of the Defense and Aerospace Report, Vago Maradian. And joining us now is a good friend, the Sangamore Institute's Dr. Jerry Hendricks, a retired U.S. Navy captain, naval aviator, and strategist who is the author of a thoughtful new piece in the April issue of The Atlantic titled 
The age of American naval dominance is over. He is a leading thinker, not just on sea power, but the future of naval aviation. And I should point out uh, that he was a naval flight officer on uh, the P-3 Orion fighting submarines uh, for a long period of time, uh, which was his day job before he became a full-time Navy strategist. Jerry, uh, welcome aboard as our very first naval aviation guest and commentator. Thank you, Vago, and uh, and uh, it's a great uh, pleasure to be here and to speak with you again. Um, and uh, and I appreciate you mentioning the the recent essay in the Atlantic. Uh, I I find it interesting that uh, in the magazine the title is America's future is at sea. But of course, when they publish it online, they say the age of American naval dominance is over. So obviously, a, a great clickbait title for the online version versus the uh, print magazine. Uh, I, I find, uh, I find uh, irrespective of the title, uh, you make actually that same point that we have taken American naval preeminence uh, for granted and why it's important to economic health. I love the uh, personal anecdotes of explaining to your mom uh, who worked at Walmart, uh, your late mom, uh, and, you know, hey, uh, you know, if you like Walmart, you have to you have to love American sea power. Uh, yes. But we we are here today to talk about American naval uh, aviation and uh, sea power from the air. Uh, but I should point out that we all watched the, with great interest the 60 Minutes piece uh, on the U.S. Navy that ran over the weekend. And I should note that the only stealthy vehicle that, that was to be seen either aboard or from USS Nimitz was uh, the Los Angeles-class nuclear attack submarine that was surfaced uh, a beam of the carrier as, as, the, as host uh, Nora O'Donnell uh, interviewed Admiral Paparo, the commander of the U.S. Pacific Fleet. Uh, you've been a longtime uh, critic of the composition of the Naval Air Wing. Uh, as you and I have very long discussed, uh, big deck aircraft carriers were developed to uh, employ big, long-range strategic aircraft. Uh, and now we've devolved into a range of short-range tactical fighters. Uh, and the Navy is still remarkably skeptical about uh, maximizing the utility of the F-35, uh, which is the first uh, deployed uh, stealthy asset. What does the future carrier air wing need to look like? Well, you know, again, as you just sur uh, surmised there, the, the big supercarrier, uh, as opposed to the, the smaller carriers that had dominated World War II and then the Midway class that came after that, we built the Forrestal class. So you had a carrier that was large enough to have a large aircraft at that time, the A3 Sky Warrior, about, you know, 80,000 pound aircraft uh, that could fly 1,500 nautical miles and deliver a nuclear weapon into the Soviet Union. That was the, the, the raison d'etre of uh, uh, essentially that supercarrier. And so for years, we designed our air wing with the idea of having range to be able to go at least 1,000 miles and drop a lot of ordnance, whether it was conventional or nuclear, and then return and then to have the carrier able to capture uh, that aircraft as it came back aboard. So that drove the physics of the size of the aircraft carrier. But over time, especially after the Cold War ended, we saw that air wing regress back to a short range light attack air wing. And so to this day, and, and this came out in the 60 Minutes interview with Admiral Paparo, where he talked about the fact that yes, this carrier and its air wing cannot penetrate um, to reach China given China's investments in anti-access air denial weapons like the DF-21 and the DF-26. So if I was thinking about what the carrier air wing of the future looks like, I, the primary characteristic has to be range. We have to regain that range in order for the carrier itself to remain relevant in future warfare environments, especially around uh, countries like China and Russia, which have made 
significant investments in these anti-access air denial weapons. The long-range aircraft are missiles that are targeted at pushing the carrier back from their shores so that carrier cannot have power projection ashore and influence, you know, sort of local operations on the land. And so, you know, that would that would represent a significant change from where we're at now uh, with the air wing and would probably suggest a deeper investment, things like unmanned combat aerial vehicles that could fly those long distances without being worried about the pilot uh, growing tired. Vago, you and I have talked about in the past that we saw some real degradation of skills, piloting skills, um, as some of our pilots flying out of the Indian Ocean would fly these long 11-hour missions up into Afghanistan at the height of that war. And then when they came back after having sat in that ejection seat for 11 hours and had to do the delicate maneuvers to come back aboard the boat, uh, saw some real drop-off in those skills. So I think you're probably looking at unmanned platforms going forward in the future. We saw with the F-4 and with the F-14 at the very least that when the Navy puts together an air wing, there's a star aircraft at the center of it. And then it's surrounded by enablers to either help that aircraft accomplish its mission or to fill in capabilities it doesn't have. As the Navy starts to plan its next star aircraft, the FAXX, how much of the capabilities we're talking about have to be centered in the main jet itself versus the inhabited or uninhabited complementary aircraft that are going to be around it? It, it, exactly. So I think you, you've sort of nailed that idea of, of what is the centerpiece aircraft in that air wing and understanding that the fighter is not supposed to be the, the centerpiece aircraft of the air wing. It is the attack aircraft. That is the thing that projects the power. The fighter is there to help defend the carrier and defend the attack aircraft. But if you don't have an attack aircraft that's lethal enough, meaning it's carrying enough ordnance, or has enough range to reach the target that in fact, again, you're into a declining relevancy of your primary platform, the carrier. And so now we're building these 13 to $15 billion Ford class carriers. And yet we have essentially a, a light uh, you know, fighter air wing at this point in time. So I think that that next aircraft, the centerpiece, that star of the aircraft has to be something that begins with the letter A. Uh, now, everyone in naval aviation says, well, we do F and A. We do fighters and attack aircraft. The Hornet is an F and A. Uh, they, they even argue that the F-35 is, in fact, an F and A, and I'm not too sure that that's correct. But the point here is we need something that strongly emphasizes the attack mission. And it doesn't have to be able to carry a lot of ordnance as, like, for instance, the A-6 Intruder did in the past, because that was the A-6 Intruder was designed at a period of time when they were all carrying dumb bombs. So, you know, what we need is, you know, the, the warhead on forehead lethality of a precision guided weapon. And so even a, uh, an aircraft that can carry 4,000 pounds of uh, guided weapons, uh, very precise, precision guided internally, thus to keep perhaps its stealth characteristics to penetrate some of these advanced uh, surface to air missile uh, battery sites, um, then that would be sufficient, but it has to have that range and it has to have that lethality of carrying enough ordnance to have an effect on the mission. I want to uh, dive in here as a fan of uh, naval aviation. I'm glad you uh, brought back the vision of the A3 uh, Sky Warrior, I should point out, right? The A2 Savage, uh, Big Gap, uh, the A3, 
that then begat the uh, A5 uh, writer, the RA5, eventually Vigilante, uh, one of the most amazing uh, naval aircraft. Uh, and then that went to the uh, A6, right? And, and with the departure of the A6 and F14, the Navy did re, uh, you know, end up with much shorter range assets, uh, both on the fighter interceptor side of things, uh, as, as well as on the strike side. The US Air Force's uh, efforts on developing its next generation air dominance airplane, the NGAD, are far more developed than where the Navy is right now in doing this. What should these two aircraft have in common? And more correctly, what should we be doing now to ensure interoperability, as much commonality as possible, right? Because there's a there's a tendency of, oh, you know, everything about the F-35 was bad. Therefore, we have to go back to, you know, reinventing the wheel. And in this case, it's not abundantly clear we, we need to reinvent the wheel. The Air Force is actually doing a lot of work. This airplane will be, you know, it will have a strike component to it. It will have an air-to-air component of it. It's going to have an unmanned collaborative combat aircraft capability that's going to be built into it as well. What, what are the things the Navy should be cherry picking off of this program to try to make its lift easier? Because we saw what happened with the A-12, not a lot of cooperation, and you ended up with a program to nowhere and a carrier deck full of non-stealthy uh, F-18s. So I think that the things, you know, on engine design, this is uh, the next generation air dominance apparently is going to be a long range uh, fighter attack aircraft. Um, and so you you want to look at that, that engine. I'm, I'm getting the sense that it's going to be something uh, large along the lines of what the Tomcat was, the F-14 Tomcat, something that also has probably an extended range somewhere in that, you know, uh, 600 to 800 to perhaps even a thousand miles, depending on the tanking configuration or, or belly tank configuration to be able to reach out there. And then the key thing that I think that we're going to have is a carryover from F-35 is sort of the combat systems management aspect of this thing. The next air generation air dominance is not going to be so much about a dogfight, uh, but it'll be more about controlling, you know, sort of long range weapons and long range sensors. And so the computer integration on that. So those sensors, those weapons, and perhaps even that engine and base uh, design, at least engine design, is something that the Navy ought to be looking at. Now, we know now, uh, because we've had two historical experiences of this, with the F-111 first and then the F-35 second, that Air Force designs are not necessarily directly adaptable to Navy designs because of undercarriage requirements, as well as tail hook requirements that the, the Navy's version of any types of joint aircraft is gonna look remarkably different than the Air Force design, which you know is based upon long runway lengths and so on. But I think that there's sort of some key central command and control as well as weapon systems, as perhaps even engine, because we're going to need something that's going to have power, but also something that uses fuel more efficiently than previous engine designs. And I'm hoping that those, at least those three sections of the aircraft design can carry over. That being said, now I just want to make this statement, which is that I'm not sure that next generation air dominance as a, a descriptive is the thing that the Navy needs next. Um, and so I've always been somewhat sensitive about NGAD. You know, here we have this huge hole of capabilities on the carrier deck for attack and long-range penetrating strike, and yet the Navy's focus and interest seems to be getting at the next fighter. And so this gets into sort of the self-licking tactical ice cream cone uh, <laughs> that we need fighters so that we can have fighters. 
um, you know, at some point in time, you've got to come back to that central baseline mission, which is penetrating long range strike. And that's something that, and I think it's cultural. Honestly, I think it's cultural. When you fill the, the carrier deck with fighter pilots, they think that they need more fighter pilots. They seem, because there's not a strong attack community or an attack cultural ethos on the deck, they don't even seem to know that it's missing now. And that that's problematic to me. So really the FAXX really has to start as an A, small f, XX. Yes. In, in that construct. Okay. But one of the aspects of the next generation air dominance program is the integration of uninhabited aircraft alongside crewed aircraft. The Navy, after some initial experiments with uninhabited combat air vehicles, has settled on the MQ-25 as sort of their gateway UAV to see how UAVs integrate onto the carrier. Is there a significant role for uninhabited aircraft in teaming with an FA or AFXX? And at some point, does the star aircraft about which the rest of the air wing is built wind up being an uninhabited aircraft. So um, I've published on this in the past. Um, so the answer to the, your broad question is yes, absolutely yes. There should be a, a role for teaming between manned aircraft and unmanned aircraft going forward into the future. Uh, the problem, uh, and, and perhaps MQ-25 as a tanker will give us that space to experiment, to work out some of those concepts of operations and figure out how those things will work together going in the future. And it also gives a period of acclimation for the manned aviation communities to get used to having an unmanned aircraft on the flight deck. The problem I have and the pushback and the criticism that I repeatedly made is that we had an opportunity to actually move quickly to that manned-unmanned teaming in a fighter and attack type configuration through the testing program that we had with what was called then the UCAV-D, the Unmanned Combat Aerial Vehicle Demonstrator, which is the X-47B, which we built the two prototypes. This was an all-aspect stealth, uh, long-range penetrating design, a flying wing, that would have the ability of carrying internal ordnance and going somewhere between 1,000 and 1,500 nautical miles. And it seemed like naval aviation did everything that it could to first truncate that test platform and then put it in the barn and move on to what is ostensibly uh, a design which isn't not so much primarily a tanker. MQ-25 has some tanking capacity. It has enough to refuel two FNA-18 ENFs at their nominal mission range, but it doesn't have enough fuel, for instance, to uh, refuel two F-35 Charlies at their mission range, which is somewhat longer. But it does have the ability to provide an, uh, an ISR asset with a fly through the night 14 hour window, which seems to be what the Navy really wanted to get on the carrier deck is something they could launch at night, put up there to keep an ISR picture through the evening and then land when the, 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 the flight deck opens the next day. I think we dodged an opportunity at that point, Dane, made a mistake. And where I think we need to get back to is something more in line with that X-47B design and the potentialities that went with it for this manned, unmanned teaming. Because you're right, I can see the man as the quarterback 
sitting there in the NGAD, Next Generation Air Dominance, sort of helping to run the battle picture with a strike element, uh, a section of, of uh, unmanned attack aircraft. So that is the way that I would see it go. And that's the way that I would suggest and advocate for. I want to uh, build uh, on that point in a second, but I also want to add another uh, naval aviation uh, note. You mentioned uh, the A3 uh, Sky Warrior. Those continued in service uh, as electronic warfare aircraft into the 1990s, even though they were developed in the mid-50s and fielded by the late 50s. Also, not just from the big deck aircraft carriers, but also from uh, the Essex uh, class uh, ships, three of which are preserved as, as museums. Uh, that were 900 foot long ships, but could still operate this giant 80,000 pound plus airplane. Uh, so I, I would commend to people that actually, if you wanted to use naval aviation and decks innovatively, you can do that. Uh, and the Navy uh, has time and again demonstrated uh, that it could, uh, again, I mean, deploy this giant airplane uh, from much smaller carrier decks. Uh, and the three museums, of course, the Intrepid, the Hornet, and uh, the Lexington. And I should point out the Yorktown as well, right? There were four of them, uh, mm -hmm. excuse me. Uh, let me, uh, Jerry, take you to the point of whether there's a willingness to embrace unmanned uh, aviation the way the Navy should. There, you know, CNO after CNO have confided and said on the record, I just couldn't get the Naval Aviation Enterprise to embrace this, right? So we ended up with the MQ-25 as a tanking asset, uh, the X-47. Uh, the minute we demonstrated that it would work, it was sent to uh, it was going to get sent to museums and Congress intervened. Is there a change on the part of the naval aviation leadership to regard uh, these unmanned assets as sort of integral and foundational to the future of the naval aviation enterprise? Because at the end of the day, if if you don't have the range to be able to be effective, it calls into question the fundamental role of the aircraft carrier as a frontline asset, right? So at the time. Bob Gates was criticizing the carrier, it was because of the realization it doesn't have the assets with long enough range to be relevant in any high intensity Pacific scenario. Has that changed from the conversations you're having happened in the naval aviation community? The answer is no. And as a P3 naval flight officer, oftentimes when I write um, in criticism of the carrier air wing, the, the response is that, well, he's not a real naval aviator. In fact, he's not even a pilot. But the point is, is I, I did make two carrier deployments on board the Theodore Roosevelt as a ship's TAO and helped with air coordination and mission planning in the planning cells. I also deployed as the air element coordinator during my 05 command tour uh, off from a light amphibious deck uh, working very closely. So I have some background and in, in experience in actually planning missions and carrier aviation environments. And the point here is the carrier aviation manned community seems to regard unmanned as something that's poaching on their turf. Uh, they're concerned about losing deck space and deck spots for manned aircraft to these aircraft, but they're also concerned about what that means for command opportunities and the change of the culture that would go, because it's very easy to see that if you start to allow unmanned combat aerial vehicles into the carrier air wing that they could quickly grow and begin to dominate. When we talk about, as, as JJ talked about the idea, what is the star centerpiece, uh, the, the queen on the chessboard or the carrier deck that comes next? And if that ends up being an unmanned combat aerial vehicle, that in, in, sense, in itself is a threat to the manned uh, aviation community, which is very culturally uh, strong. They have a, a cultural identity about who they are after all. 
only carrier aviators can command carriers. You know, no SWOs, no submarine officers are allowed to uh, command air carriers. If you don't have wings, you're not going to be there. And carrier command is almost assured promotion to admiral. So they're very protective of this. I think it's going to take strong uh, civilian and uniformed leadership to crack this. People who recognize and will step up and say, look, you know, we have 11 aircraft carriers, but they are largely irrelevant to the fight that we're looking at in the Pacific right now. And we have to find a way of making them relevant again, or they will be cut and their funding will be cut, which is a substantial part of the Navy's budget between the carrier and its air wing. That's a lot of money. And so we have to, I think it's going to take that sort of change agent leadership at the two or three star level, and certainly at the assistant secretary or even SECNAV level to drive that sort of change through because there is such a cultural resistance that I see, uh, I see and I hear about in conversations with the naval aviation community. In trying to drive change through in the air wing, one of the people who has had some ideas, at least about it, is the Commandant of the Marine Corps, General Berger, has put out ideas about the Marine Air Wing and what that might look like in the future. How well do those visions dovetail with where you think the Air Wing should go? Well, Commandant Berger is seems to be much more open to reform and outside ideas. He seems to have purposefully surrounded himself with iconoclastic advisors and analysts. So he wants to have the outsider's opinion. And I, I recognize you know, many of the voices that are in or around him. Uh, I have not seen that thus far around a chief of naval operations or a vice chief, someone who's willing to sit there and just be the devil's advocate uh, who comes in and says, uh, there is an alternative way of doing this. Uh, and then you know has the analysis to bring that forward and show that it actually can be viable. And I think that that's what we need, uh, whoever the next chief of naval operations is. I hope that he or she will have those types of advising voices around them. And quite frankly, I hope that the secretary and the staff around the secretary is also looking for sort of those outside iconoclastic voices who will come in and say there is a new path. There's a different way of doing this and then actually do the solid analysis, the wargaming that can show whether that's viable or not. We seem to be wanting to, in many ways, to avoid those testing opportunities, whether it's war games or fleet experiments that would really test uh, integration of unmanned platforms in with the fleet, whether it's unmanned surface or unmanned air. I'm just not seeing that being done. And we need to find a place uh, to do that in, in many ways to kind of let the unmanned communities uh, let those horses run free to see what they can truly do. Let me just ask uh, one follow-up, and and there was an ASW question I was going to ask, but I, I sense that JJ is uh, thinking the, the exact same question I am, which is, range-wise, what is the range figure we need to be shooting for, right? Because in all of these older generation of aircraft, you were talking about a combat range of 500 to 750 miles or so, right? 800 miles if you're, you were lucky even in the long range carrier air wing of the past, right? Now we're talking about getting pushed a lot farther away because of the long range uh, weapons, some of which are specifically tailored in order to take the carrier out. And we don't have enough defensive assets to be able to use. And it's not abundantly clear. We're just going to electronic warfare our way through this, Jerry. So what does the sweet range spot start to look like, given you're going to be deploying air breathing weapons, right? They're going to give you a little bit more uh, stick length but at the end of the day, the aircraft are going to have to get a lot more 
forward uh, and the carrier pushed a lot farther back. You know, what's what's the range number people should be bearing in, in mind? And does that forward edge of it, does that really have to come from unmanned aircraft that can operate in that contested forward airspace against a generation of Chinese aircraft and air-to-air -air missiles that are intended to push all of us, even in the air, farther back? Okay, so I'm gonna uh, I'm gonna take that in sort of a couple of different segments. So talking about ranges, for instance, following World War II, when we were doing a study to look at the creation of the what became the Forrestal class supercarrier, uh, the Naval Aviation did its own internal study on what were the ranges of aircraft that it felt that it would need. Uh, I included a graphic from that study uh, in my October 2015 um, uh, paper, Retreat from Range, which I published at the Center for New American Security at that time. And I and I've just opened it because it happens to be on a shelf next to me here. And I'm looking at that graphic. And at that time, they called short range aircraft 700 nautical miles. And then medium range or intermediate range aircraft on that graph was 1,200 nautical miles. And then long range aircraft were 1,700 nautical miles. That was what Naval Aviation understood in 1949 to be the requirements for its future. And so when you saw the A3 Sky Warrior, for instance, which had a, an unrefueled range of about 1,200 nautical miles, but once it hit a tanker, which oddly enough at that time was one of its other uh, sister aircraft, a, a KA3, then that aircraft could be extended out to 1,800 nautical miles for a combat radius. And I think that that's where we have to go. That's the sweet spot. 1,500 to 1,800 nautical miles is what you're looking at. And then when you look at sort of the physiology of aviation, um, that's what drives you, I think, to unman. So Chris Bowie did a study right after sort of the beginning of the, the wars on terror, where he looked at unmanned aircraft. And what they found was, you know, this degradation of piloting skills after about 10 hours of flight. And anything that you're looking at, unless it's supersonic, and we don't do missions at supersonic speeds because of range and endurance, if you're looking at a subsonic range of out to 1,800 nautical miles, well, now you're, you're looking really at uh, a mission profile that's going to be somewhere between 8 and 11 hours. And so once you're looking at that, you're really sort of driving yourself to an unmanned configuration. There are manned aircraft that I think can be up there uh, for that long. But you better be able to get up and get some blood for circulation going to your legs. And so that aircraft is much larger as the A3 was. The crew could actually pull it themselves up out of their ejection seats and, and stand sort of behind the seat uh, in, you know, with the, the three crewmen on that aircraft. Uh, you're going to need something that large um, if you're going to be doing an extended mission. The Ford-class carrier brings tremendous new capabilities but it wasn't designed for the air wing that we're talking about now. Is there anything that would need to be changed about the carrier to enable the ideal air wing? And are we going to have to wait for the entire fleet of carriers to be Fords before we can really achieve this vision of naval aviation? So again, um, I will say something I've already written about elsewhere, which is that the Ford class in and of itself is a mistake in designing. It was a zig when the world zagged. Uh, the Ford class was designed with the idea that we were going to continuously be either in the Arabian Gulf or in the Adriatic Sea, and we were going to be launching a series of 500 nautical mile short-ranged aircraft 
uh, and that we needed to do many, many, many cycles a day with a very short transit distance until they hit their targets, whether it was up into Iraq or into the former Yugoslavia. That was the baseline assumption of the Ford class that it would sit very close to the enemy shore. And that's why the Ford is designed uh, to generate uh, launch cycles. You know, it's there for sortie generation rate. That was the extra added advantage of the Ford was that it could do approximately 25% more sorties per day than the, the Nimitz class. But once you get into something that's a long range uh, battle where you're doing long range power projection into anti-access air denial, uh, you're going to launch that air wing in the morning, uh, and then you're going to have the fighters come back and be refreshed a couple of times. But a majority of your air wing is going to launch in the morning. It's going to go away for the day until it comes back and recovers. So you're not looking at trying to generate between 140 and 150 sorties a day. You're looking at generating you know, between uh, 60 to 80 sorties a day. So the Ford was designed for a different environment than what we're seeing. We're going to build Fords until someone wises up and says we don't build Fords. And, but if you're going to make a carrier that's actually focused on what we're describing here, which is an air wing that is going to begin integrating unmanned, then that carrier can look differently. Uh, it does not have to be as large or, or as heavy or as complex as the Ford. In fact, there would be some significant cost savings. I actually wrote an essay a couple of years ago called The Carrier We Need. Uh, which by the time I got done with that level of analysis, it looked remarkably like somewhere between a Midway class and a Forestal class, something around 80,000 tons. The hangar bays and the elevators would be different because if you're dealing with an unmanned air wing, uh, the profile of the aircraft isn't as large or as tall. Uh, and so there's significant changes and some savings that could go on there to help get that cost per carrier down from the 13.9 billion that we see now, something perhaps even more in line with the cost that we saw with the last Nimitz class we created, which came in just shy of around uh, 7.3 billion in then year dollars. So I think that there's you know, some significant changes that could be made once we identify, again, the air wing first and then the carrier second, as we did kind of with the Forestal originally, we designed what air wing we needed and then we found a carrier that could carry it. Um, I, I would uh, point out, though, having been aboard Ford uh, a couple of times, an enormous amount of flexibility on that ship. Uh, and the Navy has shown that it can use platforms uh, differently and modify them as needs uh, fundamentally change. I, I want to ask a final question on anti-submarine warfare, but just you know, one point, right? I mean, the Ford class uh, ships are remarkably flexible. They generate enormous electrical power. They have electromagnetic catapults for that reason uh, to reduce wear and tear on all manner of aircraft uh, that they're launching. And the first unit price is rarely indicative, right? I mean, the first Nimitz was a lot more expensive uh, as well, right? I mean, so you have to get deeper into the class uh, for the, the individual uh, costs uh, of it to come down. And again, it's, it's built to a degree of survivability that we expect uh, from our uh, high-end carrier force. Let me uh, shift you to the question of anti-submarine warfare. You're a P3 guy and maritime uh, patrol is absolutely critical uh, for the future. Um, the P8 program uh, is just now sort of, you know, folks are getting into their, uh, looking to get into their stride in anti-submarine warfare. That wasn't a focus of the airplanes uh, when they first uh, came in. It was important to sort of get it in there for a whole bunch of other purposes that we're using it for. What's the focus that we need on anti-submarine warfare, uh, Jerry? And how does the carrier play into it? Aircraft carriers were as critical to anti-submarine warfare 
uh, as the P3s were, as frigates were, as destroyers were during the Cold War. Uh, the you know S3 Viking and S2s, uh, right? I mean the Stoofs uh, as well uh, as the Hoovers were vital uh, in anti-submarine warfare. Uh, we had entire aircraft carriers, right? A lot of the older Essex-class ships were converted into CVS anti-submarine warfare ships that had a lot of trackers on them, as well as anti-submarine helicopters. How does the carrier air wing need to play into the anti-submarine battle, which is going to be a very big problem with the new generation of far more quiet ships, especially when you don't have as, as many submarine assets as, as you'd like uh, to, try to, to, to try to take that fight as forward as you can? So I think that that's a major hole uh, right now in the way that the U.S. Navy is planning its future operations. Yes, the P-8 is now in the fleet and it's hitting its stride. And they're working out the uh, the operations of an aircraft which works at fairly high altitude uh, doing anti-submarine warfare, as opposed to the P-3 Orion that I flew in, where we would be down, you know, uh, uh, 200, 300 feet over the water with a magnetic anomaly detector trying to detect submarines not only through buoys, but also through mad gear, this, uh, this uh, 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 mad anomaly. And in the, the, the P-8 remains high, so it doesn't have that sort of localization tool, but it seems to be coming along and maturing rather rapidly. It also has a high degree of vulnerability because, it's, uh, because it operates at high altitudes based on a commercial design. Um, you know, it shows up rather well on radar, so you want to think about how you're going to operate that in and around the fleet, you know, providing ASW assistance to things like the carrier, depending on where it's operating. We used to have the idea that the P-3, now the P-8, would work the outer ASW battle, essentially working about 30 miles or so away from the carrier. And then the inner battle would be handled by the S-3 uh, Vikings, as well as the, the helicopters with dipping sonars. The helicopters would operate in the near proximity around the carrier. The S-3s would occupy that space, kind of like five miles out to about 30 miles. And so we had this sort of inner, medium, and outer zone approach. Now we have some dipping sonar uh, helicopters, but we're missing that middle zone uh, that the, the S-3 used to, to supply. Now, I think that there's room for correction there. If we recognize that ASW, if we're going to be operating in a really submarine contested environment, which the Chinese are making additional investments now in a new generation of, of attack submarines, then we'll probably need to make uh, an investment in a new types of ASW aircraft probably something, oddly enough, that's going to look remarkably like the S3 uh, because of the range and the ability to drop sauna buoys and torpedoes and so on. And, and there's room on the flight deck. There's only uh, about 65 aircraft right now on the carrier flight deck. These flight decks are, are designed to be able to handle up to 85 to 92 aircraft. So there's room for expansion, both in the hangar bays, as well as on the flight deck itself, especially with the Ford, which is larger even than the Nimitz. So I think that there's room there. It's just going to be a decision the Navy needs to make that it needs to make an investment in an aircraft that can handle that medium ASW battle going forward. Dr. Jerry Hendricks, senior fellow at the Sagamore Institute and author of an article in, you find it in the April issue of The Atlantic, depending upon whether you're online or not. It has different titles, but the important part is that it is very thoughtful about what the United States Navy's challenges look like going forward. Thank you so much for joining us today. It was my pleasure. And Jerry, uh, thanks, uh, thanks again and again, not to understate 
uh, not to drive forward a, a Navy bullet point, right, but the great flexibility of naval aviation uh, and aircraft carriers is uh, their very flexibility, right? They can operate a variety of different aircraft. The key is figuring out what the hell to put on them. And that's exactly, uh, you know, just what you were saying there, Vago, that's exactly what how we need to look at this. We need to be able to understand that the aircraft carrier itself is an asset um, and, and it has tremendous flexibility. It just depends on what we put on it, the investments we make in that carrier air wing that will decide the relevancy of that platform, which I think still has several decades to go of relevancy if we make the right investments. So I think there's an, there's an up picture there if we just think about it the right way. Thanks for listening to the Air Power Podcast, and be sure to tell your friends. A special thanks to GE Aerospace for their generous support. We'll be back next week. Yeah.